Well, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me one last time as we finish up our series through these two shortest books of the Bible, 2 John and 3 John. The message of these two letters are very important uh, because in these two letters, the Apostle John emphasizes the balance of both truth and love in the Christian life. And these two letters are really similar in terms of their content, but there are some differences. And so 3 John really supplements what John has to say in his second letter. The second letter we saw was addressed to the elect lady and her children, which I believe was a reference to the the church. He's addressing a local congregation of believers Well, 3 John is addressed directly to an individual by the name of Gaius. In 2 John, the church is warned, really given a standard by which the church can discern whether a teacher was true or false. And so 2 John says that uh, there are those times where you don't need to invite a false teacher into your home and show hospitality. Well, 3 John, on the other hand, says that there there are indeed times where you do invite those who were true gospel servants into your life and you show hospitality and you give of your resources to support the work of the gospel as they're faithfully serving. So you have this balance then where discernment in love is emphasized in 2 John. Devotion in love is emphasized here in 3 John. And so I've said that 3 John is really the most personal of John's epistles Because in this letter, he mentions three men specifically by name, and uh, he's doing the very thing that he writes about down in verse 15, where he says, greet the friends each by name. And so 3 John really serves as sort of a primer on the value of friendship, the value of hospitality, and how the gospel puts us in close relationships with one another. I'm so glad that when I got saved that God put me into the family of faith and that the Christian life is not a solo journey, but we're in this together as the people of God and the gospel binds us together in a close relationship. We have fellowship with one another in the gospel. And so John really addresses the letter to his friend Gaius, who's a man that we've already described as really being a portrait of selfless service. And so the the first eight verses or so of 3 John, John is commending Gaius and pointing out certain characteristics in his life for which uh, Gaius was worthy of of admiration and praise. Uh, John says that he's someone who uh, lives spiritually. He's a spiritually minded man. Verses three and four, he emphasizes that Gaius was walking in the truth. Wasn't just something that he said truth was not simply a matter of his words, but it was also the manner of his lifestyle. He's an illustration of what it means to be a faithful servant. He had opened up his heart, opened up his home, opened up his hands to help give and help support these traveling itinerant missionaries that the Apostle John had sent out. Now, the reason that's important is because in the first century, so much of the ministry in the local church was an itinerant ministry. Evangelists and teachers and various leaders would often travel uh, from city to city, from church to church, 
sort of like those circuit-riding preachers of yesteryear that you've heard so much about. Well, we sort of take that kind of thing for granted today, but in the first century, so many of the local congregations were dependent upon itinerant evangelists and teachers uh, for the ministry of, of their fellowship. And so then in verses 7 and 8, John says that Gaius was really an illustration of what it means to give generously. He financially supported these missionaries that John had sent out to the, to the, um, the churches. And so having said that, this morning I really want us to look at what the Apostle John has to say concerning those two other men that he mentions here, two men by the name of Diotrephes and Demetrius. And so if you have your Bible, uh, read with me beginning in verse 9 of 3 John, where the Apostle says, I have written something to the church... But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. And so here you have someone who is the exact opposite of Gaius. If Gaius was a man of generosity and hospitality, a man of selfless service, Diotrephes is the kind of guy who's in it for himself. Uh, he wants the spotlight to be kept on himself. There's no humility in his heart, in his life. Uh, he slanders the apostle John. He refuses to welcome these itinerant evangelists that have been sent out by John. And he even prevents those in the church who want to open up their homes and support these teachers. And so John is having to deal with this issue of diatrophies. And so he says in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius, here's the third guy that he mentions, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So more than likely, Demetrius is the one who is carrying the letter from John to Gaius. And like Gaius, here's a man who also is walking in the truth. Here's a man who has a powerful testimony where the truth corresponds with his life, and his life is not a contradiction to the truth that he claims to believe. And so John closes by saying, I have much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. And so I want to speak one more time from that subject, greeting our friends by name. Now, I would imagine that most of you are familiar with that fictional story that comes from Greek mythology about a young man named Narcissus. And as the story goes, Narcissus was a handsome young man. Everybody praised him over his handsome looks, and, well, he was very proud of it. Well, one day, Narcissus saw his reflection in a pool and was mesmerized by the reflection that he saw of himself. What he saw staring back at him from that pool of water was so intriguing to him that he couldn't pull himself away. And so as the story goes, he, he perished 
uh, having fell in love with himself so that he eventually drowned, hence the term narcissism. Now, you're familiar with that term narcissism, but it's defined as excessive interest in one's appearance or excessive interest in one's self. Narcissism is extreme selfishness and self-centeredness. It's the mentality of the person who goes through life that thinks the world revolves around themselves. Now, I don't think that I have to work too hard this morning to convince you that narcissism is a problem in our own day. Uh, There have been studies shown uh, that have revealed that modern Americans are more self-absorbed than previous generations. Some would even agree that self-admiration and narcissism are necessary for success. That is, you can't really succeed in today's society by today's standards if you don't have some degree of narcissism. Someone who's written a lot about this is a lady by the name of Jean Twinge, but a few years ago, she wrote a book called The Narcissism Epidemic, in which she quotes a professor of sociology at Cal State University who was being interviewed by the LA Times and said this, we have a society in which narcissistic behavior is a good quality to have. This is a bottom-line society, and so students today are smart to seek the most direct route to the bottom line. Now listen to this. If you don't have a me-first attitude, you will not succeed. So in other words, to really be successful in society, by society's standards, today you have to have a me-first mentality. Uh, She quotes someone else, a a guy who was the director of uh, counseling and psychological services at the University of Nebraska. He said this in a newspaper, uh, in this country, the idea of valuing oneself is critical to success. And to me, that's healthy narcissism. Healthy narcissism. I mean, if there's ever been a contradiction in terms or an oxymoron, that's it. Uh, But we shouldn't be surprised that the world tends to think and operate that that way. Just this mentality says that you've got to have ego, uh, bravado, muscle, promoting yourself. This is the way to really get ahead. This is how you really get what you want. The world is a cutthroat kind of place, and so those who get ahead ought to be the most cutthroat. And that leads to this pragmatic approach to life that says do whatever you have to do, be whatever you have to be in order to succeed because succeeding, that's what matters anyway. Well, that may be the world's mentality, but men and women, the Bible says something completely different. And that may characterize the way that the world lives, but it does not characterize the way that a disciple of Jesus Christ ought to live. Confidence is one thing, But pride is something else. Now, listen, there is a healthy sense of confidence that comes from understanding who you are in Jesus Christ, and that's always a good thing. It's it's, it's Savior confidence, not so much self-confidence. But the pride of man, this is always a repulsive thing in the eyes of omnipotence who sees past the surface and looks upon the heart. And if we really want to see what greatness looks like, we simply need to take a look at the life of Jesus. And Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 2. 
that great passage of Scripture known as the kenosis passage. That word kenosis comes from a Greek term, a word that's used in the text to refer to how the Son of God, uh, in the incarnation, he emptied himself. Uh, He made himself of no reputation, but took upon himself the form of a servant, was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And yet, it's interesting, you don't have to turn there, but the context of that passage, uh, the instruction that the Apostle Paul has given the church, uh, he's saying, listen, don't look out for your own interests. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count other people more significant than yourselves. And so if there's ever a person who sort of is the epitome of what it means to live with self-ambition and conceit and an inflated view of self, it's this man Diotrephes that John mentions in 3 John. And so this morning, I want you to notice with me, uh, Diotrephes, he sort of presents us with a problem of selfish ambition. If Gaius was a portrait of selfless service, then what John has to say about Diotrephes sort of underscores this this idea that there's a problem when it comes to selfish ambition that must be dealt with in my life and within the context of the local church and its ministry. Now, as an elder and as an apostle, we know that John oversaw the church at Ephesus. He probably had the oversight of other congregations and churches that had been planted by the church at Ephesus. He was the last of the apostles, By the time he's writing 3 John, he's well into his 90s. Even though he had uh, been an apostle, even though he had been a close associate of Jesus and eyewitness to the resurrection, it's interesting to me that he still has problems to deal with in the local church. And that's somewhat comforting. Because if we tend to think, well, the older that we get, the easier life gets, well, (laughs) I hate to tell you or burst your bubble, but as long as we're alive in the flesh, we're going to deal with our fair share of problems. And as long as we're waiting for Jesus from heaven in this life, within the church, within the family of faith, we're always going to deal with issues. And so John, he's having to deal with individuals in the church who make ministry difficult. In the second letter, he's, he's dealt with the one who was too inclusive Uh, so that they would just sort of embrace any idea in the name of compassion. Well, here he's dealing with someone who's the very opposite. And that's often what you struggle with in the local church because the pendulum seems to swing one way or the other. There's just something about us that just gravitates toward extremes. We know that we're called to love. It's in our heart to do so as believers. And yet there's always that temptation to be so accommodating for those who who, who emphasize love to the degree that they would even neglect doctrinal standards. And then, on the other hand, there's the temptation of those who are so committed to doctrinal standards that it leads them to even be too narrow and and they they don't emphasize compassion. And so balance is important here. We're to speak the truth in love. But you see, in terms of character and behavior, diatrophies is really the polar opposite of what we've seen in Gaius in the first eight verses. Gaius is a man who walks in the truth. He's a man who loves the brethren. He shows hospitality to strangers in the name of Jesus. But Diotrephes, well, he's a man who loves himself more than other people. 
He's a man who refuses to show hospitality. He's a man who refuses to welcome the brethren, nor would he allow others in his area of, uh, of leadership to show them hospitality. Most scholars say that both of these men were more than likely members of the same congregation. And so you've got these guys who are at opposite ends of the spectrum, spiritually speaking, even though they may still be under the same steeple, so to speak. And so it kind of reminds us of this truth that within the visible church, the evil is always mingled in with the good. In other words, let me just tell you what that means. There ain't no perfect church. <laughs> and if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll mess it up. <laughs> because none of us are perfect. Um, the issue and the problems, it's not people. But it's the sin which so often manifests itself in, in our lives due to our sin natures. And so I think we need to remember this when we're dealing with people, when we're dealing with circumstances that tend to arise in ministry, because they always will arise. No matter how diligent we are in our doctrine, no matter how pure we are in our devotion to one another, the church will always have its fair share of issues to deal with, because where there are problems, there are people, and where there are people, there are problems. But people are not the problem. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but it's the enemy who exploits our sin nature, and sin corrupts our nature. And so within the church then, there's got to be this balance of truth and grace. There's got to be this boldness to confront sin, but also a tenderness to forgive the offender. And so John is saying, I know what Diotrephes has done. And so look at what he says in verse 10. If I come, I will bring up what he's doing. John is saying, I'm not going to let this sort of get swept under the rug, but I'm going to have to deal with it in the open. Because that's how you deal with issues. You have to deal with them in the spirit of the Lord Jesus. You've got to rebuke the offender, but you've also got to forgive the offender if that offender humbles himself. And Jesus outlined the principles of discipline and church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. So that if you've got an issue with anybody else within the church, you know what you need to do first? You better go to that person. And, and, and the end goal of discipline, it's always reconciliation and the restoration of a relationship. It's not to keep people at arm's length. And so four things that we really need to pay attention to about this character named Diotrephes. Number one, notice with me what I'm calling his self-aggrandizing character. And you know what that means. Just simply refers to an individual who asserts themselves and sort of elevates themselves above other people. John says about him in verse 9, I've, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, he doesn't acknowledge our authority. So we notice that he's this type of guy that just likes to be center stage. Other translations say it this way. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence, receives us not. Eugene Peterson, in the message, paraphrases, paraphrases it this way. I wrote something along this line to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves being in charge, denigrates my counsel. And so the idea is, 
Diotrephes is the kind of guy who will play second fiddle to no one. He's the type of guy who has to have the preeminence. He loves to be first. In fact, there's a compound Greek word used here in verse 9. It's the only time that this word is used in the New Testament. It's made up of two words, uh, meaning love and first in rank. So Diotrephes is the guy who loves to be first in rank. Uh, He has a self-aggrandizing attitude. He's someone who lives to promote himself, someone who lives to exalt himself. He's got to be the center of attention. He's got to be the main attraction. When he was in elementary school, he always had to be the line leader on the way to lunch. Never content to take a back seat. He's the kind of guy that's always got to be in the driver's seat, even if he doesn't know where he's going. And so Diotrephes, he gets his sense of value and worth by upstaging everybody else. If the limelight shifts from him to somebody else, he can't handle it because he's threatened by the gifts and the contributions of other people. It could be that he had a very strong personality. could be that he was extremely gifted, which, by the way, this is a, a reminder for us in the church Never must we so get caught up with the spiritual giftedness of a person that we overlook their spiritual character. Because a shallow society such as ours, we tend to just get mesmerized by a person's gifts and we, we tend to downplay the spiritual fruit that's being produced in their life by the Holy Spirit or lack thereof. And so the Bible says that both the Spirit's gifts and the Spirit's Spirit's fruit produced in our lives, both are important. And given the one, the fruit of the Spirit's more important than the giftings of the Spirit. But we tend to get mesmerized by the giftings of the Spirit often, don't we? Case in point, the church at Corinth had this issue going on because they started lining up behind gifted leaders in the church. And Paul has to write the church and say, let me tell you something, it ain't about your leaders you got this person who says, well, I'm in this camp, and I follow this particular stripe, and I belong to this tribe, and I line up behind. And Paul says, listen, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of (laughs) y'all. He said, but I'm having to deal with this, this factious attitude among you that always just wants to rally behind some particular gifted leader, and it's because there's a part of our immaturity that wants to elevate the gifts of the Spirit above the fruit of the Spirit In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul deals with the gifts of the Spirit, but then he comes right back and says in chapter 13, love is what will remain. It's character. It's the fruit of the Spirit that's being produced in a person's life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all of those characteristics that he mentions in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And so it's not one or the other. It's both and But let's make sure that we understand that, man, God looks upon the heart. And what is it that we ought to expect from our leaders more than their gifts? It's their character. It's their character. Is Christ being formed in my life? Is Christ center stage in my life? Or do I have this attitude of diatrophies that says I've got to be the hero of my own story? Now, folks, let me tell you something. There's only one hero in the church, and his name is Jesus. It's not the pastor. It's not a staff member. It's not a lay leader. 
It is Jesus and Jesus alone. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that Christ is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. So that in everything he might be preeminent. If there's any preeminence that goes anywhere, if there's any spotlight that goes anywhere, it goes to Jesus. And so Diotrephes then, he assumes a position for himself that only Jesus should hold. Now the church has long dealt with certain individuals who always seem to gravitate to positions of leadership, not because their spiritual character sets them apart, but because of their uncanny ability to play power politics. And you often see this in congregational forms of church government. It's easy to play power politics and assert yourself. That's what Diotrephes evidently had done. But here's the thing. When you have a self-aggrandizing kind of a spirit and it's always got to be about you, there will always be a trail of carnage and destruction that's left behind in your wake. Because people become obstacles to you that you climb over on your way to the top. And so a person who has a narcissistic attitude, listen, marriages have been destroyed because of the narcissism of one spouse or the other. Families have been brought into complete dysfunction because of the narcissism of a mom or a dad. Or or what about parents that tend to want to make little narcissists out of their own children by always telling their children that they're number one and teaching them that the world revolves around them. And so ours is the day of the participation trophy where everybody gets a blue ribbon and everybody comes in first. And if that's the way that we're raising our kids, we're we're setting them up for failure when one day they discover that the world doesn't really revolve around them. Amen, preacher. You preach it. (laughs) And so his self-aggrandizing ways. But then notice something else. What about his self-authoritative spirit? You notice that in verse 9, John says, I've written something to the church. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, he does not acknowledge our authority. So perhaps John had written a letter to the local assembly intending for them to receive some instruction. But the idea may be that it was intercepted by Diotrephes so that it never made it to the congregation. I mean, can you imagine coming between the apostle John and a local church? That's what Diotrephes did as he refused to submit to apostolic authority. And he viewed John as being a threat to his power. And so it's just a classic power play. Now I know what you're sitting there thinking. You're thinking, okay, this is awful. Imagine doing such such a thing that you would reject the authority of, of, of one of the apostles himself. But let me tell you something. There's a modern equivalent to this that still is happening Churches all throughout the West, there are plenty of churches in High Point, even this morning, that think that they're smarter, they're wiser, they're better, the spirit of the age is more in tune uh, than than the, the apostles. And so what they do in the name of acceptance and tolerance and love, they set aside the clear apostolic testimony, the body of doctrine laid down right here in the Word, and they buy into the spirit of the age. And so they set themselves up in a place of authority. They're self-governed. And let me tell you something. It's nothing more than just the narcissistic, proud, arrogant, egotistical attitude of our own times that's manifested itself in the church. 
We're smarter than God. We're wiser than God. The Bible's an antiquated book. It's an ancient book. We need to be more in step with the spirit of the times. And so Diotrephes rejects the word of God for the tradition and wisdom of men. And it's a sinful thing when you reject apostolic authority. It's a sign of apostasy. That's what it is. And so the spirit of Diotrephes then, this is, this is not something that's new, but it's always been around. And it manifests itself in just this self-governed mentality that refuses to submit to God's truth. Well, notice a third thing about him. Notice his self-assured words. John says in verse 10, if I come, I'm going to bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. So now notice that the pride in his heart has now manifested itself through his speech. And the idea is that he slandered John's character and disparaged his person. And that's what pride will do in a person's life. It seeks to pull down the reputation of someone else so that it can elevate itself and make itself look better in the eyes of another person. Why is it that we spread gossip about someone else that perhaps we hear? Well, it's because we want to sort of look better in the eyes of the people that we're talking to than what we really are. So he's casting John in the worst possible light to make himself look better. But John says he's, he's doing nothing but talking wicked nonsense. He's spreading gossip. And, and the, the verb, the Greek verb that John uses here comes from a root word that was used to describe the action of water whenever it boils over. Let's say you put a pot of water on a stovetop and you bring it to a boil and it bubbles over. He's referring to sort of the, the steam bubbles that come up off of that boiling water. There's nothing there. There's no content to it. It just makes a lot of noise. That's what he's saying. Diotrephes, he's, he's, he's empty, he's vain, he's talking a lot of nonsense, but it's all emptiness. And so it's descriptive of his slander. It's sheer nonsense, strife that was being stirred up by nothing but his own sinful pride. And then notice a fourth thing about him. That's his self-assertive actions. Because John goes on to say in verse 10, not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brethren and stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So he slanders John. He shuns anybody who considers him a friend. And, 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 and here he's not unlike those people who say, you can't be my friend if you're her friend. You ever met anybody like that? who just suddenly cut you off for, for whatever reason and then come to find out it was simply because you were a friend to someone that they didn't like. Man, I'm plowing right here. <laughs> huh? And it's just this, this proud, territorial kind of a spirit. It's nothing more than just the pride of man that's always a stench in the nostrils of God. So, folks, here's what happens. Diotrephes, his circle kept getting smaller and smaller because he wanted to be the most important man in the room. And that's what happens. And that's where your pride and your ego will, will lead you if you let it. And one day, you'll be the only person in the room, and there won't be anybody else in your life. 
because you're the one who always has to be first and it's always got to be your way. Now, I don't want to leave on a sour note this morning because John doesn't leave on a sour note. He doesn't end his letter that way because he's got one more friend that he wants to recommend to our attention and his name is Demetrius. If Diotrephes represents a, a, a sort of a problem of selfish ambition, Demetrius is the opposite. Here we find a pattern of sincere faith. And there's not much said about Demetrius outside of verse 12, but a lot of what John writes about him, it's, it's, it sort of echoes what he's already said about Gaius. Here's someone who is a Christ-like example. Here's someone who has a testimony of what it means to walk in the truth and what it means that his lifestyle doesn't contradict what he says with his lips. And so I find in Demetrius, he's someone to imitate, first of all. John says, he, rather than Diotrephes, his example must be emulated. Look at verse 11. He says, beloved, don't imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And this may be a sort of a clue that John is saying that Diotrephes, the pattern that's consistent of his life, regardless of what he says, the way that he's treating people may give witness to the fact that he doesn't even know Jesus in a saving way. He's got to have the limelight. He's got to have the spotlight. He's got to be boss. It's always got to be his way or the highway. That's Diotrephes. There's no humility there. And listen, the Bible says, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. But not Demetrius. He's someone to imitate. And not only do I see that he's someone to imitate, but also see that there's something to celebrate in his life. Because look at the emphasis placed there on his testimony. Three times there in verse 12 does John say that he has a testimony. His life is in accordance with the truth. The tongue in his shoe is traveling in the same direction as the tongue in his head. <laughs> he's not a walking contradiction. No, and that's something to celebrate and then John just simply closes out his letter by reminding us as believers that, that we've got somewhere to appreciate. He says, I've got much I could say to you, but I would rather not do it with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon. That is, I want to come and we can get together and we can have fellowship. And I want to see you face to face. And peace be to you. And what reassuring words that this would be to Gaius as he finds himself perhaps embroiled in a conflict that was stirred up by the sinful pride of Diotrephes. And how encouraging it would have been to him to hear the apostle say in his letter, I'm coming. Hold on, don't get discouraged. The Lord is in charge. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each one by name. So folks, listen. God said that the first will be last and the last will be first. The humble are exalted, the mighty are made low because God has chosen to use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise so that no flesh could ever glory in his presence. Jesus said, many who are first will be last, but the last will be first. One day, the day that matters when we stand before him, 
when the motives of the heart are judged and out in the open, there are going to be a lot of people who had to be first, who had to be the heroes of their own story. They're going to come in last place. And so I find here two men who were juxtaposed with each other, one man being marked by pride and ambition, the other being marked by humility and service. And folks, i got to be honest with you this morning. This has been a painful study for me this week because we can't come to a passage like this and assume that it must be referring to someone other than ourselves so that if you leave this morning and you think, man, I wish so-and-so would have been here, that would have been a good sermon for them to hear. You've totally missed the point. Because as I come to this passage, I can't help but see that there's been such a spirit of diatrophies even in my own life. And I think that if you would be honest, you would have to confess the same thing. Do you always have to be first in any given situation? Do you have to step over other people and manipulate other people to get what you want? Do you shun those who don't bow down to you? And give you what you want? Do you give credit to other people where credit is due? Or do you always have to live in the spotlight? Well, I tell you, people are watching, aren't they? And you know, if I have the spirit of diatrophies, if that's an operation in my life, I'm not going to give the world a good ta- a taste of who Jesus is. But if I sort of reflect the selfless attitude of Gaius and, and the servant attitude and the good testimony of Demetrius, then I may give the world a really good taste of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'll leave you with this. I heard a beautiful story. Robert Browning was an English poet who lived in the 1800s, but he once wrote a poem that was entitled, Pippa Passes. And it was about a a little girl who, because of her poverty and her destitute family, she was forced to work every single day of the year in a silk mill. But one year, for whatever reason, it was on New Year's Day, she was given a day off. And so in her sheer joy, she walked home down the streets of her town singing a beautiful song. And Robert Browning puts it in such poetic form Here's her song. The years at the spring and days at the morn. Mornings at seven, the hillsides dew-pearled. The larks on the wing, the snails on the thorn. God is in his heaven, all is right with the world. God is on the throne and all is right with the world. That was the song that she was singing as she was going down the streets. Her thankful little heart was just overflowing. But her song, unbeknownst to her, was reaching people who at that particular moment, at that time in their life, they needed to hear it. There was an unmarried couple moved by her song that were determined to make some changes in their life because of it. An artist who was about to lose his temper was calmed down. A seditionist who was intent upon assassinating a political figure was stopped in his tracks by her song. A man who was planning to murder for money was smitten with remorse. And so the whole point of that little poem, this little girl returns home from her walk totally oblivious, totally unaware 
of the, the, the effect that her attitude had and her song had on the rest of the world around her. Folks, that's the power of, a, of an example. And so that if we go about our days just constantly moaning and groaning and griping and complaining and talking about other people and putting other people down so that we might look a little bit better in the eyes of everybody else, that's a pitiful song. And it won't win anybody to Jesus. But you see, when Jesus is the hero of our story, we can go down the streets of life and we can sing the song, God is on his throne and all is right in the world. Because God is sovereign. Christ is king. Jesus bled and died for our salvation. He risen and has ascended and one day he's coming again. And if that's the testimony of my life and I don't have to be the hero of my own story, but I make much of Jesus and other people, that's a song that will make a difference in the world. Let's stand for prayer this morning. And that's the very thing that John is really calling for here in these two letters. The importance of gospel truth and the expression of that truth in Christian love. So that we see that he really ties these two things together. And that means to make an impact for Christ in our times, we as believers, listen, we've got to be unapologetically clear with the truth while at the same time, we need to be set apart by our love for one another that the world may know that we are his disciples. With heads bowed and eyes closed, has the spirit of Diotrephes been manifesting itself in your life lately? To where it's just all about you. You've made your marriage all about you. You've made your family all about you. You've made church all about you. And if you just had to be honest, you're just, you're just sick on the inside. Because that's no way to live. But you see, when Jesus is the hero of our story, <laughs> if we let him stay center stage, that's where it's at. We don't, live, we don't live for glory or fame or accolade in our own hearts and lives. But no, the things we do, the service we render, whether it be in the church or the community or wherever, in our homes, we do it so that it's just a beautiful bouquet that we can lay down at our Lord's feet. If you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, what's keeping you? from turning from your sin and placing your trust in him, believing that he died on the cross for your sin and that he rose again from the dead. And the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're going to sing in just a few moments. And if you need to respond, whether it be for salvation or baptism or just prayer, you be obedient. Lord, thank you for your word. May you do your perfect work in our hearts and lives for Jesus' sake. Amen.